Welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. As always, I have Alex Friedman with me, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado. Today we're going to be talking about different coaching strategies and different ways to elevate your coaching stance, as well as talking about the difference between academic learning as well as practical learning or on-the-job learning. Yeah, where I wanted to go with this, where I wanted to get into it a lot too, is is learning how coaches coach or or how coaches develop. So we can talk a little bit about coaching development and, and how that happens. And that speaks a little bit to my background and my master's degree. But I think it's a hugely interesting point. It's like, that guy's a really good coach. Or like, he's the coach of the year. It's like, what are the criteria for that? How do you evaluate good coaching versus bad coaching? And and you can point and say, did their athletes win? But like, where's the understanding of good coaching where an athlete might have won in spite of that versus where an athlete won because of that? So um, how are we evaluating coaching? How are we becoming coaches? What, what are some good strategies to developing as well? And it also kind of comes down to w- one thing that Alex, I want you to elaborate on is communication because communication is one and connecting with your athletes is one of the best ways to be, be become better as a coach and pick up on trends as well as get that buy-in to where you're not, your athlete isn't succeeding in spite of you, but they're succeeding because of your relationship. Yeah. I mean, communication is one of the, one of the pillars or one of the, um, aspects that that we as coaches should be evaluated on or, or something that is definitely in the mix. But communication is, can also be kind of like snake oil salesman, right? You know, even though I have buy-in and I, I, I get this athlete to believe that what I'm coaching is great and they're winning because of it, it might not actually, you know? And and so how do we get down to that root cause? And, and I fully agree that communication is a, a bridge to a better ath- coach-athlete relationship and is important to effective coaching but it's a double-edged sword too um you know i've i've experienced and i've seen a lot of coaches that are salesmen that are really good salesmen and like i'm not to their detriment right they're they're having commercial success they're in this prestigious position because of what they say because of how they say it not necessarily because of what they do and how effective their coaching is And that's how every recruiting coordinator ever gets their job. They're an assistant coach, but they're really just a snake oil salesman. Yeah. But I mean, the idea is how can we decipher between the two of those things? How can we figure out which guy talks a good game versus which coaches is actually implementing a super effective program that is promoting better performance? I think a good thing to look at too, and a good way to progress yourself as a coach is talking about trying to limit your ego as much as possible. Like the thing that I've picked up with snake oil salesmen um, is that they always feel like they have to be the man. Yeah. Like they, they can, they can talk their way out of anything, but at the end of the day, that conversation is going to be centered around making you feel good, but you also in that exact same moment, having to rely on top of them and them being the man in I think a good way to get around that would be to kind of check yourself and know that you don't know, always know the answers, even though people look to you for the answers. It's not bad to say, I don't know. That doesn't take away from anything. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's a hugely context-based thing in coaching too. Like as much as it's a, a personal ego-based um, fight that's going on within your own head, I think the context and the atmosphere around coaching is is kind of like an ego trap in that sense too. It's like, among coaches, you want to be the coach that knows, or you have to be the person that knows. I fell into that a, a lot, really, like early on in my career. I uh, had a great experience working at more of a general fitness with uh, Jordan Rudolph at Unity Fitness, and 
he runs a fantastic program and a fantastic way for just people to get fit and to get back in shape and ease into it. And, you know, he was beginning on one of my idols and it was like, everybody's always going to him for, cause it's his business head coach. He, he's, you know, the owner, um, everybody's going to him. And I was like, I looked at that and I thought, I want to be the guy. I want to be the guy that everybody goes to for answers. I want to be that guy, that type of coach that has all the answers. That's always there. And and as I progress, it's, that's not the goal. That that got me an ambitious start, and that led me into where I'm at with coaching. But I think that's, you know, my ego talking. It's like I, I'm the center of attention, right? I, as the coach, am the guy, which that should never be the case. It's the athlete's program. It's the athlete's emphasis. I'm there to assist, and hopefully I have the right answers or the best, most effective way to enhance performance. But sometimes I don't, and that's a reality too is that we all should be engaged in an evolving practice. Right, and that, that brings in trying to tie in science into being a high-level coach and trying that, that progresses your skills, looking at the most evidence-based research on combat sports training. Because as dumb as it sounds, there's research papers built around training for MMA, built around, like the UFCPI put out that, the uh, cross-sectional analysis that's a fantastic resource for you as a coach. That's and a if they have, it, yeah, it will. Yeah. But in reality, that's if, if you haven't read that book, you're, you're at a detriment to, to, yeah. to any other coach. That's what I'm saying. It's a handbook. It, give, it literally guides you. It's like, here's the formula. Here's what's the most kind of informed way to approach training with uh, combat athletes. And so um, that's a huge resource, but Anything that I do as a coach, I'm hopefully researching it and making sure it's theoretically based and theoretically sound. Um, and there's quite a few barriers to that, right? You know, how many athletes you have, how many sessions you have, you know, it's who your mentors are. There, there's a lot of boundaries or barriers, I think, to create a th- theoretically based program. But I think it's worth the time and effort to um, just scale back and actually analyze analyze what you're doing um give it some backbone give it some hardcore reasoning not just this is what my mentor did or this is what i know is good well and you can also argue that some people take it to the other end of the spectrum as well right and they only rely on the science and only rely on the objective data and that also puts people at fault because that takes out the human element of things that takes out being able to like we talked about first, connect with the athlete. It makes, it makes every athlete a number and not an actual person. And that, that is a detriment to the athlete at the end of the day. So it needs to be a healthy mix of our anecdotal and our practical learning mixed with our academic backgrounds and learning how to read research, which me and Alex have both spent stupid amounts of time learning just how to read the research. And necessary because if, if you're not accurately reading something, then you can't use it accurately. Um, but that, again, goes into some of my background in coaching development, too, is, is, you know, I had my undergraduate degree in exercise science, and I learned a lot of the hard sciences, physiology, anatomy, um, everything that goes into that, and some graduate level courses on these things. And then, you know, I get plugged into an internship in a collegiate setting, and it's like, I've never actually interacted with that. You know, it's like, if there's two sides to that coaching development coin that I think don't need to be two sides, like we need to integrate them and, you know, train coaches in an integrated model that could be better going forward rather than here's science, here's communication. Let's smush them together. Or here's science. Here's the art of coaching. Let's smush them together. Why, why don't we create a theoretical model that we can coach and learn both at the same time, create a theory based 
approach to coaching development. Well, and I think a good, a good example of where both of these things come together, a, an interesting cross-sectional point um, is a research study that I just referenced on my Instagram, as well as a traditional martial arts skill. And they actually show the same thing. It's just martial arts wasn't able to show the objective data. And Dr. Stu McGill showed the objective data. It was the kia in karate that that brace upon impact. And then Dr. Stu McGill was able to then reverse engineer the research and show why the kia actually matters. So it's, a, it, it's basically what, what they talked about was on initiation of a strike, you have a full trunk brace and full trunk rigidity as you then go through the air and you go travel towards your opponent, whether it's your arm or your leg, or you're taking a wrestling shot, then you're going to relax as much as possible to gain velocity. And then upon impact at your opponent, the, mo- the highest performing athletes all make that maximal rigidity or that end range rigidity at the end, which basically is just the Kia. But it was a cool way that it, it, what's, what's interesting about it is they were able to objectify the data and bring everything from the anecdotal and the academic side and put all that shit together, which yeah. is, it's, it's, cool. it's a cool cross section. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that's really interesting too, because um, they're taking it like a social, um, like a customary practice, something that's more sociocultural or if you want to call it soft science or, or more uh, social science. And then they're backing it with, you know, objective positivist science and, and giving numbers behind it, behind it. And I think that's really interesting because that right aligns with where my thesis is at, where I'm talking about social practices and customs account for just as much, if not more influence than hard science and evidence do especially in practice. Um, maybe not for a practitioner that reads exclusively research, but for the normal coach, the normal athlete that's going through these um, whatever practices to en- enhance performance. And I utilize cutting weight in mine, the social norm and the custom of cutting weight, the social factors are so much more influential than what all the research says in that aspect. So it's, and then same with your Kia right there. It's been a social practice and people have known to do that and known about that you know, customary practice for a really long time. And now we're putting science behind. So it's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Does the science make it correct and give us a good backing? Or do these customs that we have dictate how we behave more? Yeah. Yeah. And, and being able to analyze that and being able to, to pick up that, that social, I guess, social intelligence is so important in coaching your athlete. Mm -hmm. You also need to know when it's too, when it's also like, too important bringing it back to the ego side of things when when you do have that social that social intelligence social influence social theory social theory um sorry i'm not a sociology major (laughs) um but (laughs) but um when you have that social theory coming into play and sometimes it can run rampant through a team like talk going from mma to wrestling like there's some, there's some dark stuff that can happen on a college wrestling team as far as weight cutting goes. And I don't want to make another weight cutting episode, but as a coach, you need to be able to pick up on when something is going through your team as well. Because if you know something's happening and you're just complicit with it, as far as weight cutting, as far as other training habits, whatever it's, it may be, that makes it, you, this whole episode's about being a better coach. The way to be the best coach possible is to, if, if something bad's happened, hit the nail on the, on the fucking head and, and stop that shit right away. Or, or create a, a logical theory based approach to it. Right. I think, I think we get caught up and it's been popularized by so many, you know, Instagram influencers or coaches that, 
push for, you know, the art of a, a social coaching. And that's all good and well, but I think it's very poorly designed or poorly described, right? You know, you need to get better at the art of coaching. Like you're good at the, as a strength coach, you're good at the physiology and you know, the training effects and you know this, but you need to be better at the art of coaching. What, what is the art of coaching? Uh, please somebody explain that, define the art of coaching for me. And then I'll ascribe to that. What I think is better or is more constructive is a theoretically based approach, right? Because then you have, you can use social science, social theory, and these things to articulate a better social approach to coaching. So we have, you know, the science and the social theory, not the science and the art, which art is vague and hard to define. Um, and, and again, I'm not a critic of art. I think expression and, and everything that goes along with art is super important. I just think it's a poor word to use in a coaching hit me austin yeah what do you what do you got i know i know you disagree with some of that i know you you even pushed back on me when we've had conversations i i'm just trying to figure out how to frame it i mean i i don't i don't disagree that art's not the right term but any like not to get all philosophical on you but i feel like Please, anything is no, that's, I, that's I feel like I, I, I know it is uh, i feel like anything's art though like i feel like my art form like i'm not a drawer like you like you're you're a fantastic drawer i can't color in the lines i feel like most people <laughs> that know me know that but like when i write up a program like to me that's art when i when i'm out there wrestling to me that's art who's to say that while it's a very hard to describe term i guess hard to hard to nail down term calling the art of coaching that's not i don't think that's a bad thing i don't disagree with what you're saying but i think art's a perfect term because the art is different to everybody else what works for me doesn't work for you and right. while I want to objectify it, sometimes you just can't. Yeah, and that's great. But if, Austin, if you're teaching somebody to wrestle and you say, what I do is I wrestle and it's an art, how does that help who you're teaching? You know, say, I, I, I use this art form when I wrestle and, like, and it's my art. And then this little seven, eight-year-old doesn't know how to shoot a double. Is that going to help? <laughs> no, but that goes back down to the, the chef versus the cook analogy where you need to know who you're working with. And that's why I like, that's why I think I would rather call it art than theory in the first place would be that it, it's different to anybody that does it just because you like, just because I like Picasso and his blue period doesn't mean that you like it. You might think that looks like stupid shit, but that it, because there's just because we have a differing opinion doesn't mean one person's right or wrong. Just like in coaching, there's no one way to do thing. And that's kind of why I, I like the term, the art of coaching, because there's really no one way to do thing. It's all N equals one, depending on who you're talking to. And while social, like social theory is, it's a good term as well. I really like calling it the art of coaching. And I really like people studying the art of coaching because at the end of the day, talking with people to me, like that is an art form. It's like, it, like comedy is an art form. That's just one person talking to another person. Yeah, and, and I guess where, where I would accept that or like and, and i accept your point as it is like i think what we do is individualized in our in an expression of our ourselves as professionals right but i i would almost call that practice more than art and like uh, where do you draw yeah. the line between the definition of practice versus art but i would call that a coaching practice um so that's where we have our our behaviors and our leanings as coaches and, and how we do things um and where we go so and, and practice to me is you know, by definition, an evolving um, object. So as, as you continue on your coaching practice, you, you can integrate their um, informed ways to go about even just communicating with athletes or to go about how to um, promote a team's culture. Some of that, the, those social sides of coaching that I, I think are 
invaluable. I think the social side of the coaching is what makes people perceived as being good coaches more than, you know, science-based or technical-based drilling work. Like that stuff is a prerequisite. You need to know the the bricks, right? But as a coach, the better your mortar is, the better that you can tie everything together and, and glue a unit. I think that's what gets outwardly perceived as good coaching. Yeah, and and I'll be I will be the first one to admit that those snake oil salesmen that we were talking about at the beginning, mm-hmm. those are the people that call coaching an art. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I mean, well, and, that, and that, it, it, it sounds better. It's a more marketable term, right? If I right. say the social theory of coach, act the hell out of here, right? If I say the art of coaching, then then I'm refined and I have perspective. Right. No, and a hundred percent, but. Um, yeah, I, I feel like we're getting stuck on semantics, to be completely honest with you. Yeah, but you're not wrong, I, but semantics matter in the real world. Yeah, yeah. What are what do you think some other things about progressing as a coach outside of just the social aspect? Um, something that you brought up earlier, I think, just being open to learning new forms and being open to, you know, even contradicting points. I think our egos get in the way of a lot of like, this is how we've always done, done tradition, blah, blah, blah. I think accepting that there may be a better way out there. And even if that way doesn't end up being better than what you previously knew, you're better because you have uh, more awareness of it, or you can learn it and then actually consider it and progress as a coach um, to give yourself again some perspective or some way to identify with other coaches as you have those conversations. So being open to change and being open to evolving rather than stuck in your way or, or letting your ego block your progression. Yeah. That, and that's, that's one thing that I re- I love that our head coach Santino DeFranco does really well. He's literally open as long as it's not some stupid shit, like stupid, like I'm talking stupid, stupid shit. Like he's open to try. He'll, he'll literally let you try anything and he'll work with it for two or three days and he'll come back to you. Like he's done this before to me with some, cause I'm a funky, I'm a funky ass wrestler. Like mm-hmm. I scramble, I do crazy shit. And I'm like, what is, how does this work? And he'll go try it for three days. Cause he coaches jujitsu and co- obviously coaches all the fighters. And he comes back and he's like, well, I, I really like concept, but I think for, in order for it to work in MMA, we're going to have to tweak it and make you m- cut this different angle versus that different angle, but still play off the same base structure. And I think that's super important to be able to have that collaboration that a lot of coaches, like you were saying, they have that ego. A lot of head coaches, it's their way or the highway. We've both been around certain structures that like that, that's just how it's run. Like you, you don't get yeah. your own individual say. And that, again, we talked about on the pat or in the previous part of the episode, that makes the coaching about you, not about the athlete. And the number one thing to make you as a coach athlete centered is to be open to every single angle. Because if you're not open to every single angle, the athlete's going to be at a detriment because they're going to start fighting like or training like you instead of training what's maximally going to benefit them. Well, yeah, and exactly what you're saying. Just even in that anecdote, what popped up into my head is as I thought about um, some things my professors have done, even just with me, is utilizing Bloom's taxonomy. Of, are you familiar with that? Or I've, I've learned it at one point, but it's out of my brain it, now. It's somewhat um, relevant, but it's... It's just a, a organization of how higher level learning happens, right? So oh, yeah, at, yeah. Yeah. at the bottom of the pyramid, you have, you know, memorization and remembering, and then you have a base level of understanding, and then can you apply it? Then you can analyze what you applied, evaluate. And the top of the pyramid is exactly describing is creativity, right? I think with understanding and truly getting into your discipline, creating and creating effective innovations is the highest level of learning and of practice. So 
as coaches, where I'm going with this, as coaches, we want to be able to facilitate that whole pyramid up to creativity, right? We don't want to hinder our athletes and say, you need to remember this drill and only use this drill because it's my drill and I'm the best coach, right? We want to facilitate an understanding and evaluation. Maybe a, a different athlete has a different interpretation and understanding and say, coach, that technique wouldn't work if I did this. And you're like, as a coach, you need to critically uh, appreciate that and say, well, yeah, but, and then understand, or you're absolutely right. Let, let's find a different solution for it or something. So fostering that, I think is hugely important in a lot of sports. And I think MMA is better at this than most sports where coaches are more open because it is such a, a free flowing art form. Just to contradict myself a little bit, um, yeah. but enhance that creativity, encourage it, let your athletes have some sort of say, some sort of expression rather than do this drill, replicate what I do. Um, march to this beat type of coaching. Well, that's something me and me and Angel at Fight Ready do really well. And we've had a lot, of, actually a lot of pretty deep and good conversations about um, is open-ended coaching. Yeah. So give them the, the entrance. So, all right, I want you to hit a single leg and then allow them. I don't fucking care how you finish it. Just yeah. get them to the ground. Make, make shit up. I don't even care. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it, it, it harkens back to what we were talking about. Like the, when you're on bottom, he's like, do what the fuck it takes, you know, get yeah. out. Um, but no, I really like that because it, and if you think about it, and I think Joe Rogan and a lot of people have made this analogy, but like sport, all sport is, is problem solving, right? Yeah. You're presented with a problem you need to find. And I, I like that open-ended nature of it where it's up to the athlete to find the solution. Cause if coaches, if we exclusively give solution, right, but I'm not presenting any problems, then I'm going to have a, a, a nice robot that can't make any decision, yep. you know, that only has answer who knows when and where to apply those. So, open-ended coaching, open-ended problem-solving solutions. I, I present problems and then the athletes and, and maybe I have a good way as a coach to make that solution better, which is a, where you fit as a coach, right? Not that's demanding. the, the that's the role of the coach is to help them get to the solution, but eventually scale yourself back. Like at like it, it again, goes back to the cook versus the chef. You need to know where at in the training paradigm the athlete is. If they're at the beginning, then you're going to have to give them training wheels a little bit. As they get more and more comfortable with the drill and they understand the movements, then you can scale back and allow them to just be as creative as fucking possible. Yeah, and again, I think all of this sounds great and it's like a real romantic version of coaching. Like, this is amazing. This is what you want to do with every single athlete and, and create this huge quality type of coaching approach. But in the reality of it, and I think... Um, this might be a, a U.S.-based thing or a, a cultural-based thing where we're focused on productivity. As coaches, we are responsible for so many athletes that, or well, at least I am. I don't know, Austin, you have more one-on-one -on -one sessions, but you get pushed so many athletes in front of you that you have to you have to be forced to make a generalized, most effective program rather than a, a an individualized, uh, most uh, effective rather than, uh, I don't know, just general program. Yeah. Well, and, and you talking about romanticized and romanticized concepts in coaching may, leads me to the next topic is talking about feedback for your athletes. Cause that's another huge thing on becoming a better coach is, is learning how to feedback. And me and you both know the, according to the research, positive feedback is always going to be better than negative feedback, no matter, no matter what that's, that's what the research has shown in literally every study, but then bringing in my anecdotal evidence of myself, just talking about myself, I do fucking terrible with positive feedback. I, I learn nothing from that. I need somebody on like, I need somebody telling me that I am a terrible human being and that if I do this, I'm awful. 
I don't, I don't do well with somebody praising me. I do so much better with somebody getting on my ass when I do something wrong. And like that, I think that's something that personally, obviously I'm evidence-based and I use as much positive feedback as possible. But I think that's a, it's a weird concept for me. And I know at least three or four of my buddies just like me that if there's positive feedback going on, they, they don't progress as an athlete. They just stay the same. But as soon as you, you threaten them with that negative feedback, they just, it's like a poker on their ass. They just but, keep going. Yeah. I think the, you've been conditioned to be like that, right? A hundred percent. That was overnight or that's like a, a strict personality trait. I think the way you came up in the wrestling room that you did come up in, you know, there's, there's a lot of negative feedback going around. So you've learned to adapt to that and to utilize that type of feedback. And then when somebody gives you positive feedback, I think you've also been conditioned to say, this is meaningless. He's not, he's complimenting me. So he's not trying to help. I think, uh, I think a lot of that goes on too, is as we're athletes and, and the environments that we're in, that shapes how we take feedback and how we develop as well. Right. But I think that's important too. The reason why I wanted to bring it up is because, I mean, a, I, a lot more people than you think grew up in wrestling rooms like my wrestling room. Oh, yeah, and I think, and I think that's something to, and, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. I'd like to say that I'm glad I grew up in a, in a rough environment in that wrestling room, but it made me better. But I think that's something to note when we're talking about MMA and combat sports specific training is you, you that comes down to knowing your athlete. And, and while we know that kids and new athletes, it's so much more important to be as positive as possible and offer them that, that, positive reinforcement, but sometimes you could just get a dog that sometimes you just need to hit them with, please don't actually do this, but hit them with that electric cattle prod and like give them that negative feedback and get the fuck off bottom. Yeah. See, uh, that's where you, that's where you lose me a little bit. I, and I, I question even your just assumption there when you said, you know, I'm better for it. Um, I think there, there was probably a lot of problems with how that played out in your wrestling career. I mean, it, it may have made you felt tougher. It may have gave you success like immediately within your, your youth wrestling program or your national run in high school. But I think um, there are some detriments or there was at least a better way to do it, you know? Um, yeah. With no, negative, I, don't, I, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, I was more meaning I was, I'm better at, personally. Like I think I'm better as a human for it. Yeah. As far as an athlete, I, as far as an athlete, I probably agree with you that that caused me to, I mean, I, everybody know everybody around us knows I peaked in high school. <laughs> like, like I, the, my body broke down by my end of freshman year of college. Like yeah. it, and that was purely because I worked myself to the bone and I had poor nutrition. Right. So uh, again, I think there, there's a lot better way to go about that, but to your point about the feedback, I mean, what, what you have to do to communicate with athletes is, is what you have to do. And that may be immediate, the short term, um, but eventually you want to scale it to the most, a most productive and the most healthy type of relationship, you know, and, and I've, I'm not trying to be a softie, you know, I've been in wrestling rooms on football teams where like, you know, you get absolutely berated with coaches, <laughs> by coaches and like, and that's all good and well and, and things, but I just think there, there's a much more effective and a better way to approach that. Some, some dudes need, do need a kick in the ass. Like I'm not saying that they don't, but they have to have the base level understanding that it's the kick in the ass is coming from a loving place or coming at least from, from a, a, a wanting to better this person place. You know, if you have, if you repeatedly kick athletes in the ass and they have no positive connotations about you, then you're just creating hate or creating resentment from your. Well, and I, I think you hit it 
perfectly with saying it has to come from a place like you have, you have to feel like it's coming from a place of love. Like you have to think that the coach, even though he's being a dick is doing it because of your best interest. Because I've, I've also been around negative feedback that just didn't work for me because I'm like, well, this dude is just being an asshole. Like this isn't helping me at all. But when it came, when, when I do get that negative feedback from, and again, the people, not just me, but the people I'm also talking about that I know this is how that works. If it's somebody that they respect and they trust a hundred percent, like you have to have that trust relationship. If they, if I trust that somebody has my best interests in mind and they could do it, like they could negative, positive, I don't fucking care. It's going to work. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the one of the biggest things that I personally dealt with with this is if there's a coach that you know what's coming from a loving place, even though what they're saying is negative, you know, I interpret that as passion. They're passionate about getting me better and they want me to succeed, which is why they're so fired up or they're so seemingly negative about this. When there's not that established, it's like this guy, Dick, he's mad. Something's going wrong with his wife or his home life. I don't know, man. You know, so like it, it's that type of interpretation and like i don't know i just i have a trouble i have trouble uh, accepting that that's how you should treat everybody and that the the negative based feedback or like the more kick in the ass type of thing is is a, a productive way forward i think again it may give you short run um benefits but overall i think there's a a lot better way to get there and regardless right. of how tough, how tough you think you are like sure yeah no and I, i'm not trying to say this is how everybody should coach i was just, i wanted to bring up something that i know is going on in mma because like yeah. in combat sports because we've both been around combat sports i mean i've been around combat sports since i was six yeah. you've been around it since you were eight or something like that like it's it's something that we've i i know i've seen literally my whole life and it works for some people doesn't work for others the majority of people it doesn't work for but but I feel like it's an idea that needs to get out there that you need to be aware of this sometimes work for some people. Yeah. That, that's really, that was really the point of what I wanted to get across mm-hmm. that you, you need to know who you're, it comes down to, you need to know who you're working with. Cause like I said, sometimes what is the most evidence-based approach will not work. Yeah. I think that's fair. That's, that goes back to your point that N equals one, but, and I think there, there's an awareness of it too, right? If I'm being a hard ass because I know this ass will respond to me being a hard ass, I think there's a fine line between me being a hard ass to satiate my ego and because I want to be a hard ass versus being a hard ass to genuinely reach this athlete. I think a lot of times it comes down to like, as a coach, again, who are you talking for? Are you, are you talking for yourself? Are you are talking so that you can boost your own ego as a coach? Or are you are you doing this to reach the athlete? And I think a lot of times it, it gets construed that, you know, I'm a good person, but as a coach, I'm an asshole because I, I'm sacrificing my ethics to get the best out of this co- uh, this athlete, which, again, I think is kind of a foolhardy plan. Well, yeah, and that, and that brings up something we were talking about before the podcast is like, Something that that I've seen, and I I had to check my own ego real quick, and then luckily I realized it before I went through. Is one uh, for one of my athletes, I tried to progress them a little bit too far, farther than they should have. I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's probably top twenty five in the world as an MMA fighter, and he thinks he can do everything. So I pushed him, <laughs> I pushed him a little bit too hard one day, and I I overloaded him, and I had to I instead of me just decreasing the load. My initial thought was, just don't be a fucking pussy. Just lift the weight. And that, that's a huge, that is literally just an ego trip. And I had to, mm-hmm. I literally, I felt myself have to pause. I regressed and I'm like, all right, we're going to, 
I don't think you're ready for this yet. I think we need to scale this back and, and drop the weight. And luckily it was with this, with this guy, he trusts me and he really trusts what I'm talking about. So there wasn't going to have, he knows that when I say that I'm honest and that I'm not calling him a puss or anything like that, but that might be a hard conversation to have. Yeah. And I think that there's two, there's two levels of humor there, you know, like first is acknowledging that you screwed up, right. It's not, it's not like you had that initial reaction to like make the athlete athlete soldier on and, and, you know, deal with it. But like you awareness of like, man, I screwed up. Like I, I have to own this right now, you know, tell the athlete, you know, I, I inappropriately, I progressed you too quick. That's on. And then you have to find a genuine way to connect with your athlete and, and tell them that maybe you're not ready for this progression or this isn't the right progression for the time in place that we're at. Um, because I think those are both hard conversations to have both as a coach, because, you know, coaches are people that should know that should never mess up. That should always uh, be perfect and guide and, and things like this. But then there's also the security with the athlete of like, okay, I know you're a high level professional athlete and you can perform or, or you're a testosterone filled 17 year old high schooler and you can do anything and you're invincible, <laughs> but this is not the best thing for you right now. Like you need to have that uh, comfort to give the person that conversation. I have it all the time with, with high schoolers in the weight room. It's like, yeah, you could do that weight, but it's going to be a garbage rep and garbage reps are, are garbage to do them. Right. So how can you keep the relationship intact, but also tell the person that this is uh, too advanced for you, or this, this would not yield us good results. Um, I think there's a level of comfort to having that conversation. Yeah. And Again, all of this literally just comes down to you got to know your athlete and you got to check your ego at the door. If you want to be the best coach that you're, the best practitioner or the best nutritionist or whoever, dietitian, you just need to check your ego at the door and understand who you're working with and understand what the goal and make it all about them and less about you. Yeah, and I think that's a specific in coaching. It's a hard thing to do because we look at all these popularized, you know, figurehead like good coaches and a lot of them are good because of their ego or because of their showmanship or, or salesmanship um, and they're belt chasers right or they're they, they've made a brand of themselves as a coach and then and we look at that um you know and, and i th i'm more of a fan of you know the outlook that like coaches should stay in the background and be the background like i get that but that's maybe not most uh economically feasible or that's not a, a terrible a, business model right but <laughs> yeah i'll be i'll be ned stark from uh game of thrones where i'm ignorantly noble right so yeah. that can be a fault too i mean i think there, there's a lot of traps that go in there but I, I would rather err on the side of of humility and um authenticity than profit and notoriety yeah i, I agree it's it's not about at the end of the day it's not about like it's not about making money like you're it's in coaching about, yeah. to you're in coaching to help your athletes the best you can you're yoda they're luke skywalker and you got to realize that yeah so I mean, I, I think that we went down a rabbit hole of like a lot of ethical and, and base coaching, but I think like exactly what you said, summing it up, it's all about how you put it together, you know, the type of person that you are. And I think that's an ever evolving platform. You know, I'm still trying to be the best Alex Friedman that I can be. And uh, I think that's pursuing that goal is going to only make me a better coach and help me to develop my understanding that and having the humility to accept that you don't know everything and there's no one best practice in coaching is a, a hard to swallow, but a necessary pill. Yeah. So that, that's what we got on making yourselves a better coach. I know, like Alex said, we went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. If you have any questions or want to talk about this at all, shoot us an email or an Instagram DM.
all of the, our emails and handles are going to be in the show notes. And thank you all for listening. Really appreciate it. And tune in next time. Thank you. Peace.